You're listening to the Psalms for Sojourners podcast, in which we look at the Psalms as prayers for God's people on every occasion. We hope it's a blessing to you. Hi, and thanks for listening to another episode of Psalms for Sojourners, a Sojourn Montrose podcast in which we explore the Psalms as prayers for God's people on every occasion. In this week's episode, I sat down once again with a covenant member, a deacon and parish leader at Sojourn Montrose, and a dear friend of mine, Nick Lipscomb, uh, who has been on the podcast before. And and this week we discussed Psalm 88. Uh, Psalm 88 is unique among the Psalms in that it is a Psalm of lament, uh, often known as the Psalm of depression. And and it's distinguished from other Psalms expressing lament and sorrow and and sadness in that in that the text really provides no opportunity for hope. Uh, the the author is is totally and utterly hopeless and despondent and full of sorrow and real depression. And Nick and I talked about how how that really fits in to the Word of God and what God might be teaching us through that psalm being in the Psalter. Um, and how even though the text itself uh, does not have any resolve or relief, uh, that there there are things within the psalm that point forward uh, to hopeful things, even if the author uh, didn't know it. And so I, I, I hope that you'll enjoy this conversation. I know that I found it helpful, uh, and particularly if you're one who struggles with depression or deep sorrow, I hope this is a blessing to you. Uh, we love you and are thinking about you, uh, particularly this week. Thanks. All right, I'm here with Nick Lipscomb, a second-time guest. Uh, Nick, it's good to have you back on. Does being a second-time guest make me a regular contributor? Uh, sure. <laughs> if that's what you want to be. Infrequent, regular <laughs> contributor. Yeah. You're, uh, you're on the... Uh, the travel squad. Indeed. Uh, well, it's good to have you here, and I, um, I'll just spoil it for people. Uh, we're going to talk about Psalm 88 today, um, which is an interesting psalm, and I, I know there's a couple of things uh, in the psalm that, that you did some research into in regards to definitions, um, and if you want to provide those, and then we'll read the psalm and then just get started. Yes. Let's start with some definitions because that's a good place to start. So first, it's actually not even in the text of the psalm, but it's in the foreword, foreword, which is a mascal. So I didn't know what a mascal was until I looked it up. And the footnote in probably many of your Bibles just says it's probably a musical or liturgical term, which is fine. And I think that that's a good place to start. But I wanted to know a little bit more about that. So I used the old Google machine and saw what other people think it might mean. And forewarning, there is not a very strong definition that people think is for sure what a mascal is. But there's a lot of there's a lot of people that think that this what I'm about to say is is probably very close to it. So a mascal, as I looked up, was yes, musical, and it could mean a song or psalm of contemplation, so it's meant to be very contemplative and inward-focused. But it also could mean something that is antiphonal, which means that it is call-and-response-like. So 
you see that in the beginning it says a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, meaning that the person who wrote this wrote it most likely to be sung by a group of people. So as you'll see later on in the psalm, there's places in which I could definitely see one group of people singing one line and then another group of people singing the next line and so on and so forth, back and forth. And I think that that's cool, one, because the psalm itself is written in the first person as if only one person is singing it. But when you have words that are meant to be one person saying it, but designed to be sung by multiple people, you can apply one person's feelings to an entire group of people or vice versa. Yeah, it's a way of expressing unity in a certain idea. I mean, we do this liturgically on Sundays all the time with call and response readings and prayers. We have not done it in singing, but that's not uncommon in the church. Right. And so that's I think that's something that's helpful for people to to think through. And then there is a reference in verse 11 uh, to what I perceive to be a geographical location, Abaddon or Abaddon, or I don't know how you would pronounce that. But And the same thing goes after looking this up. It could be a couple different things. First thing I'll point out is that this is a pronoun. So it's capitalized A, and so it has a little bit more weight to it. And a quick search would tells us that Abaddon is culturally Hebrew, um, and it's also the Greek equivalent of Apollyon. And in both of those cases, those two capitalized forces were either the bottomless pit or the angel of the abyss or something like that. So the abyss, the deep, bottomless pit, those are all words that come together. And I think it's important and very interesting that he used the proper noun here, the pronoun, because I should have said, I don't know my English, sorry. The, the 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 noun that matters because ultimately you want this to have a lot more weight than just one simple definition or one simple word like pit. So. Right. And and it would carry with it connotations, right? It's not just a bottomless pit. It's the, this this specific bottomless pit that holds either existential or religious meaning for a people. You know, it's it's not just this bottomless pit that you would jump into like a well, it's like a, a concept of despair or destruction. Is that right? Right. Okay. Cool. Well, with those definitions in mind, do you just want to read Psalm 88 for us and then we'll talk a little bit more about it? Yes. So the ESV gives the Psalm the header, I cry out day and night before you. And then immediately after that, we'll start a song a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choirmaster according to the Mahalath Le'enoth, a maskil of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit, a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. 
My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I guess just right out of the gate, um, this this psalm is marked by a lot of um, dark and sad and I think probably most accurately depressing language of this psalm I've read is is distinguished from all the other psalms even of lament in that this is the only one that provides within its text it, it provides zero hope for the the author he has no concept of of anything good that can come and so do you want to just talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that are being said in this psalm or or some of the things that are being expressed that that would help our listeners get a better grasp on what's going on here. Yeah, you highlighting that it's a very different psalm I think is important. And just to say, last week Reed talked about the psalm that we read as a history lesson and it it was it was meant to be something that was shared with a group of people such that they remember where they come from. But this psalm immediately strikes me as a feeling of death and alone, but not just death as in the physical death or the physical dying act, but what comes with death being isolation and aloneness or loneliness or complete abandonment. All of those things come up to me as this study in death that this person, he man, the Ezraite, has felt. So, and I think that that's important that we at least see in this psalm, it would probably have been very hard for him to come up with the language that he did and to have the meaning and the sense that he had without having at least felt some of the things that he wrote here. And probably we can conclude that it's more likely that he felt all of them very deeply. So very much we have here a psalm of depression or sadness or loneliness or isolation. And how important is that in the year 2020 when many people have felt alone, isolated in their quarantine, hopeless, um, antsy, um, anguish, all of those things. All of those things are felt to some degree in Psalm 88. Yeah, and I, I think that I think that there's parts of this psalm and language in this psalm that that anybody could identify with to a degree, the feeling of whether it's you know just feeling full of trouble, or um, having a, a deep fear of of death, or like your life has no purpose, um, or feeling abandoned by those around you. But I think kind of the combination of all of those and the severity with which the author talks about those things, 
I know personally it's hard for me to identify with. Um, and I think it's hard for me in general to identify well with brothers and sisters who experience real deep uh, ongoing depression. And, and this psalm is helpful, I think, because it gives language from the Spirit of God to help me understand and for those brothers and sisters to feel understood not only by me but by God because right. he hears this and he cares about it. Yeah, it can. it's a very good point. It can go both ways because I feel similarly to you, but we both know people in our lives, some of which we are extremely close to, that have struggled with deep depression. The kind of depression that you feel like in verse 4 that you can't move, that you have no strength, that you don't want to get out of bed. And it gives empathy to people maybe more like me or you that if someone is feeling that way, I at least now have a biblical precedent to say I can cry with you and I can sit with you and I can maybe not fully understand it, but I can get a glimpse into what that looks like. So you're right. It is very important for all of us, whether we have felt depressed in the past or currently depressed now or have never been really depressed, we can all have things that we take away from this. And going back to that masculine language, have unity in the song. Yeah. Yeah, we can we can sing it or pray it together uh, and make it our prayer, even if it doesn't describe necessarily our individual circumstance. I think that's a, a really helpful point. I think one of the things in the psalm that I find interesting is maybe the most hopeful language is uh, the very first voice at verse when he says, Oh Lord, God of my salvation. Like there's this recognition that, that Yahweh is the God of his salvation um, and that he's going to keep praying to him, even though he seems to have no hope that things are going to get better. Um, and, and maybe in his current circumstance has no reason to believe that, that, that God is even listening. Um, but he's still going to continually cry out to him. And I think there's something in this Psalm that, that really can ground us in a sobering way in this idea that, that the Bible is clear over and over and over again that that us being faithful or having faith in God is by no means uh, a ticket to prosperity and happiness, right? Like this, uh, Haman was like, he was a worship leader in the time of David uh, in the temple. You know, he was a prominent figure in Israel and a man, uh, presumably of faith, and is is clearly suffering. And so, it it also fights against, I think, the idea that sometimes we hear in in some Christian circles that that those who are depressed or those who are full of sorrow. I mean, we even see this play out in the Book of Job that they have done something wrong, so that so that they are suffering in that way. Right, so that's a key takeaway that, and it must be stated, you can be a faithful Christian and still struggle deeply with depression. Yeah. That is, there is no other way to take that than from this psalm, I think, and I think that that is important to be said. So, the other thing that I think that stands out to me, at least for the first half of this psalm, and to that point, is that if Jesus is meant to be the Savior for all people, 
and meant to be the high priest that can not only empathize but sympathize with all the ways that we felt, then we must trust that he felt in his life certain depression at times. And what I immediately get drawn to is in the same way that this first verse acts as a petition in a cry out um, and letting his prayer come before that, that I am reminded of Jesus, even though he knew the path set before him, still wept in the garden and said, I please take this cup from me because what we will find later on is that he is going to go face Abaddon. He is going to go to the bottomless pit. And if if any of us who are listening have ever felt this kind of depression, we can trust that Jesus felt it even more, being perfect and being God. Yeah. So the full capacity of eternity brought into a man, that is a lot of emotion. Yeah. And that is something that definitely is very weighty to me. So in that same vein, we now see Jesus reading the like to me I hear Jesus reading these words as a man saying father let my prayer come before you and please listen to my cry and I see him saying my soul is full of troubles because I know that my life is drawing to an end soon and going to Sheol and he knows that it, it, in order for there to be victory over the pit he has to be counted among those who go to the pit yeah and cut off from the hand of god exactly yeah, this be, is the Gethsemane prayer. It's the Gethsemane prayer. He will be slain and he will lie in that grave. And I, looking to death again, like one thing you pointed out, like we, we, some people I think fear death in the sense that they get to give up or they're going to lose all the good things that they have. But the, the way that death is looked at here is you already have nothing and you're going to something worse. Yeah. And even more so... Um, the idea of, and it's brought up a little bit in later on in the verse, but this verse five, like those who you remember no more, this idea of being forgotten or cast aside or becoming, like think about all the people who have died in your life and the fact that you remember them means that they had meaning and value to you and had worth. And this Psalm is essentially saying that no one, you not being remembered means that you have no worth. Yeah. Well, and it's not, you know, he's not even saying that you know, my friends or family won't remember me, but the Lord won't remember me. Exactly. Like that there's this, yeah. And then verse seven, he says, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves, which, which is interesting because it, it could, the psalmist could be theologically correct that there's a way in which he sinned against the Lord and, and the Lord is, is disciplining him, you know, for his sin. Or he could be, misunderstanding what's going on in his life but but as a psalm of Christ like we know that we get to this point where like it is true that on the cross the wrath of God lied heavy upon the Lord exactly it, it, it was it he the son was overwhelmed by all the waves of the father um which really leads us to in verses 10 through 12 this this set of questions that I know you're particularly interested in. And so you want to talk a little bit about those. Yes. The thing that stood out to me, I think in one more comment proceeding before nine or in verse nine, it says, my eye grows dim through sorrow. And every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. One side point. I think that that is very much something we see in Jesus spreading his arms on the cross and opening up to that. And then Verse 9 sets up these next set of questions in a way that I think is 
a final petition, a, a call to ask for, I have come to the end of myself. I have come to the end of all things. I have nothing, no gas is left in the tank. And my final petition is to you. But for those who feel this way, the next set of questions are rhetorical in a sense that you get the feeling that they don't even believe that the answer could be good. Yeah. Or you, it's almost a challenge like, do you work wonders for the dead? No. There are no wonders for the dead. And I know that the departed don't rise up to praise you. Mm. So why are you leaving me here? Like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. It's one met with much sorrow, but it's almost, there's almost even a little bit of rebellion in the way that the question's asked. Yeah. Because it's saying, you, God, have left me in this place, and you have done nothing to bring me out of it. And if I'm going to ask these questions knowing that you won't still bring me out of it, what hope is there for me? Yeah, this, uh, these questions make me, uh, when I read them, I think about like a, a dramatic point of like climactic tension in a movie where the protagonist is shouting at, at the Lord or, you know, maybe at just an empty void, the right? Like, whatever. Just, like shouting, do you work wonders for the dead? Do you, do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in a Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? And obviously I'm not going to shout into the microphone because it would be really unpleasant (laughs) for the listeners. But uh, is that kind of the way you read it of just this, this ultimate frustration and sorrow and hopelessness? Yeah. Substitute any word there. Anxiety, depression, sadness, anger, loneliness, heartache. All of those questions are asked expecting a bad answer. And I think that that, I mean, who, there's been times that I've certainly experienced in my life where things are not going well and I just expect them to continue to not go well. And mm-hmm. I think that that's where the, the psalmist is at this point asking these questions. And so before we go and answer that, we do see, though, in verse 13, that even though he's asking his rhetorical questions, expecting worse news, he is still saying, I do cry to you. And in the morning, and I think that that's significant, not the evening, the morning, meaning that there is hope, still a glimmer, maybe, I'm going to rise up and continue to be faithful because I know that you are faithful or I know that you are still the only answer. Like whatever, if I'm going to cast my lot, I'm going to cast it with you because that's the best chance I got. Yeah. Yeah. And when he says, but I, O oh Lord, cry to you, like I, at this point, I'm believing that there are actually tears on the page. Right. You know, like not, this isn't just poetic language. This is, I, I really am weeping to the Lord um, because it can't get worse, but I, I need, I need a fix. I need something. Yeah, and him saying, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless, really does render him extremely prostrate before the Lord. But then finally, as we mentioned in the very beginning of this, this is one of, if I think it's the only psalm that doesn't end in hope in some way, because finally, now being exhausted, now having shouted those answers into the void, or those questions into the void, you feel covered by the flood, by the waters. You feel entrapped. You feel friendless. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me, to put me aside. Again, as Jesus felt by his closest friends, 
abandoned in the garden. And then finally, on that Good Friday, my companions have become darkness. And that's it. Yeah. That is the, the tenebrae, as it were, in the, in the Easter tradition. Yeah. And so we are left with pretty much nothing. We are left with that angel of the abyss standing before this man victorious in his own sense. The angel being, or the pit. Yeah. Well, and, there, and there's something really, really horrifying, but also beautiful there. I mean, there's this horrifying hopelessness that, that there is not only de- a depression or a guilt of sin or whatever it is that, that this man or that we are totally unable to overcome on our own that our only hope is to cry out to God for help. Um, but whereas he is asking these rhetorical questions with the expectation that all of them, which ask if God does something miraculous for someone in his situation, he's expecting obviously that the answer is no. But we know that that's not true. Right. Because we have Jesus and because we have to and must read all of the Old Testament and really all of the Bible through the lens of the death and resurrection of Christ, we, and this is the most exciting part, and this is the part that does resound so deeply within you and me and anyone who calls Christ as Lord and Savior. When we ask the question, do you work wonders for the dead? From the void, the answer bursting gloriously forth is yes. Yes, I do work wonders for the dead. Mm -hmm. And yes, the departed do rise up to praise me because I have risen them or have rose them up. Yes, the steadfast love, the greatest love was declared in the grave because Jesus being that greatest love was put in the grave. And the faithfulness of God is found in Abaddon that that Jesus is the Lord of the grave, that Jesus is the Lord of death, that he holds the keys to Sheol. He holds the keys to hell in his hand and he takes them and he has put his authority over them. And so God being the most faithful is the faithful one in Abaddon. And then we see the wonders are known in the darkness because again, shining gloriously forth, we see the light of Christ shining on the dead when he says, awake, O sleeper, come rise and I will shine on you. And finally, we do see, yes, your righteousness is found in the land of forgetfulness because we see that when Jesus set that table before he went to his death and then even after with the fish on the beach, we have a table of remembrance. Yeah. And so there is no more forgetfulness. There is no chance of being forgotten. There is no chance of being cast aside and falling endlessly in that bottomless pit because Jesus has reversed that curse and brought us infinitely close to the Father. And so we see these resounding yes, 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 yes over again. And I, I love the beauty of thinking as the person he man wrote this psalm that although he probably did not understand it at the time, that the Father was shining and smiling and gloriously thinking, Yes, just wait. Yeah. I'm coming. Yeah, and how beautiful coming. is it that he even asked the questions to which the answer was yes when he thought it was no. Yeah. I I think that 
Man, it's just so beautiful. Do, do you work wonders for the dead? Yes, I'm a God who does that. Do the departed rise up to praise you? Yes, in fact, they will all rise up to praise me. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Yes, my son declared my steadfast love in the grave. Or your faithfulness in a land of everlasting destruction? Yes, it is. Everlasting destruction is met with everlasting hope. Are your wonders known in the darkness? Yes, I am the light of the world. Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Yes, that's true. And I've established a righteous people to dwell in the land of forgetfulness. And like all of this, this psalm that is marked by zero hope, like just this utter depression and despair is met with this glorious hope in the work of Christ, in the hope of the gospel. And so I'm wondering how is it, how can we participate in a, a ministry of hope um, to a hopeless people while being sensitive to their station of depression. And, and what I mean is, is when we have a brother or sister maybe in our congregation who is struggling in the depths and sorrow of depression, how can we remind them of the hopeful answers to the questions that they're asking um, without it simply sounding like a theological exercise? Right. I think a few things come to mind. First and foremost, the two, th- the two things that we mentioned already, being forgotten and being alone, um, it's often probably not going to be words, like you said, that are spoken bluntly or even in good faith. Their words are not necessarily going to rest well on a brother or sister who's struggling. But what ultimately will, even if they don't feel it at the time, is making sure that they know they're not forgotten making sure that they understand that they can sit with you or that you can sit with them and they not be alone in darkness. And so these, it's no longer really words, it's physical actions, it's physical representations of the way in which Jesus then, as the person who went first into the grave, is now the person that walks through the grave with us and brings us out of it. Yeah. So that the waters of the Red Sea, when they are parted, are not crushing the people like the flood waters are crushing Jesus here. We know that in the Christ-like phrase, he has a staff he's going to walk through. And so in the same way, we must be the companion alongside those who are struggling to walk with them through those waters. Knowing yeah. that they knowing that they may not appreciate it at the time, or they may even ignore it or not even recognize it that you're doing that, we are still called to do that as faithful brothers and sisters to those people who are struggling in that way. Yeah, I, I mean, it makes me think of Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And the implication there is that the shepherd is with them in the valley of the shadow of death. If he's close enough for the rod and the staff to comfort, like, that, it's not just that when you get through the valley of the shadow of death, the good shepherd will be there waiting for you. It's that he's going with you and so are his sheep. Um, which means so are the people of God going with you through this. And I think, I think what that makes me think is that there's such beauty in, in the idea of this being a call and response. Um, yes. Because there's, there's grace in commiseration, right? Like not just in 
hearing somebody that's suffering and telling them, oh, well, you have hope in Christ and things are going to get better, but someone who's willing to lower themselves to suffer with you and to sing your psalm of depression as if it were your own. Um, Because I think that's what Christ does for us, right? Like he, he is not... Not only has he been the suffering servant, but he is the sympathetic high priest who who doesn't always give us a rote answer of it's going to be better or, you know, just have hope or just have faith or just cheer up. It's no, I, I will be with you in the mires and the bog. I will p- wear sackcloth and ashes as long as you are um, because because you're not just a project that I want to get better, but you're my friend and companion and I'll just be with you. Um, and I think that that is uh, the beautiful work of brotherly love, but it's hard work. It's very hard. It's, it's the difference between wanting to just fix something and caring. And that is often, I have found that that is a weakness of mine in friendships, in the relationship with my wife. I think that that's something I certainly can grow in and that this psalm does encourage me to seek those things, to simply be there and care. Yeah, and and just to circle back on on the the beauty of this psalm being in the Bible is not only that that Christ fulfills it and give it gives us hope when we read something hopeless. Um, but there's something beautiful in God allowing there to be a psalm of seeming hopelessness in the Bible to give voice and validation and comfort to all of his children who will feel like that. Um, and, and it's possible that not all of us will ever feel the way that Haman did, um, but, but some of us will. Many of us do. And God has said, you can bring that to me. Not, like, not only can, do I give you permission to do that, but I've put it in my book so that you would know it's good to do that and that I commend it when you do that. And you can rage at me with hypothetical questions that you fear might offend me. And you can tell me that you have no hope that I'll make things better. And you can do all of those things, and I can take it because I'm a, I'm a good father. And you can yell at me and use me as a punching bag when you need to because at the end of all of that is an empty tomb, and, and I will lead you there. Yeah. And that's good news. As it says, paraphrasing from the New Testament, that all the promises of the Father find their yes in Christ. And that is exactly what we see in the question and the call and response of Psalm 88. Yeah. Well, I think it's fitting that likely our listeners will hear uh, the ongoing reign of this tropical storm in this uh, discussion on a psalm of depression. Um, but uh, Nick, thank you so much for, for joining and for providing some insight and for exploring that with me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.